Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. When I was in college, we did something called evangelism training at the church that I worked at. The theme of the training was fishers of men, fishers of men, uh, playing kind of play on words of something that Jesus said. And there were three stations um, and people would come in and in the training, they would go to the stations, they would kind of rotate around. And the first station was called going out on the boat. What do we need to pack? How do we prepare? What do we wear? How do we present ourselves? The second station was called baiting and casting. What kind of bait should we use based on the person that we are talking to? And the third station was, I'm not, this is not made up. This is real. The third station was called reeling them in. How do I set the hook? How do I reel them in? What do I do with them after I reel them in? Even as a 19-year-old who was pretty sold out to sharing my faith with others, I remember feeling really uncomfortable with this training. I remember wondering what I would tell my non-Christian friends if I walked up to them, started sharing the gospel, and they asked me, like, why are you doing this? Would I say something like, at church we did this training about how to fish for people like you. We learned about how to go looking for people, how to bait them, how to set the hook in their mouth and then reel them in. At best, right, it's unappealing. At worst, it's dehumanizing, right? Treating people like animals to be conquered or caught doesn't feel like something that Jesus would do. When someone uses the word evangelism now because of how pivotal that evangelism training was in my life, that's what I think of. I think of that training. And I think of the feelings that I had inside as I was going through it, as I was helping lead it as I then tried to put it into practice in my life. What about you? What comes into your mind when you hear the word evangelism? Maybe for you it's the Romans road. You know, those verses in Romans you're supposed to walk people through that kind of tell them the gospel. Maybe it's the four spiritual laws. This was a big thing, Campus Crusade for Christ made these little pamphlets, four spiritual laws. It was an easy way to walk through, share your faith. Maybe it's something like this guy. Yeah? I love that he's pointing at us, you know? It's just great camera work there. Maybe for some of you, though, it's like a, it's much nicer, right? It's like a, a deep conversation with friends, you know, about spiritual things or, or the first time you heard about the love of Jesus. And like, it feels good when you think about evangelism. Or maybe it doesn't feel so good. Maybe some of you think about tracks. Raise your hand if you know what a track is. Tracked. I don't know how to say that correctly, but... All right, most of us, most of us. I brought one of my favorites with me. Is it the money one? Oh, gosh. You know. <laughs> I don't want you to all rush the stage here, but I've got $100 million <laughs> up here. I have $100 million bills. True story. $100 million bills. Have you ever seen these? A uh, million dollar bill. It's got Ben Franklin on the front. I guess they were like, yeah, he's good enough for that other money. We'll throw him on the $100 million too. But the, the, the front looks a little bit like currency. I'm not sure how they get away with that. The back does not look like currency. The back says, the million dollar question is this, 
Will you go to heaven or hell when you die? Here's a quick test. Have you ever lied, stolen, or used God's name in vain? Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you have done these things, God sees you as a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And the Bible warns that one day God will punish you in a terrible place called hell. Winsome, isn't it? Good Lord. You can take some of these with you if you'd like. Um, Afterwards, I think the best part about them is I knew people that left them as tips. Instead of real money, just drop a hundred million in there, you know, right in that little book and the greatest tip of all, I guess, right? Huh. Before I was officially kicked out of my youth group, which is another story for another time, they used to take middle schoolers to the intersection of Slaughter and Manchac. I I grew up here in Austin, just down the road from here. They would make us hand out tracks to people waiting at stoplights. And they gave each of us a certain number of tracks, and we would win a prize if we handed out the most tracks. And I, I was never really good at it, and nobody would roll down their window. And so my strategy was that if somebody already had their window down, I would sneak up and throw it in <laughs> as quickly as possible, and then I'd run away. And they, my youth pastor wouldn't count it, though, for some reason, toward the, toward the overall goal. I don't know if you know this, but the most famous tracks of all are called chick tracks. Who, raise your hand if you know what chick tracks are. That's a little bit more niche, but chick tracks. They're created by the fundamentalist evangelist named Jack Trick. Chick, chick tracks have sold over 750 million tracks worldwide. Here's a sample of one. You can see it up there. Someone wants you for dinner. The devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom to desire. The devil kind of looks like the cowardly lion, I feel like, in that picture. You're no match for him alone. There's only one way to escape. If you don't take it, your chance is zero. Who is this deadly enemy out to ruin your life? He's called the God of this world, Satan, Lucifer, Baphomet, etc. If this is a joke to you, oh, this is talking to me now. This is a joke to you. You'll remember reading this tract at supper time down in hell. Most people are going to hell and they don't believe it. Why didn't somebody warn me? No. If you don't do what this little book says, God won't need to put you in hell. You're already there. The use of fear and violence to coerce people into becoming Christians is not new. It's not. It's very old. Many Christians considered the Crusades to be evangelistic in nature. In the year 1095, Pope Urban II called Christians to recapture the Holy Land from Muslims The Crusades would last for a few hundred years, and most people who didn't convert to Christianity were executed. Scholars and historians can't be exactly sure how many people died during the Crusades, but they estimate somewhere between one and nine million. Even chattel slavery in the United States was excused as a form of evangelism with many pro-slavery pastors claiming that enslaved Africans were better off because they'd been brought to a Christian country where they could hear the gospel for the first time. Now these are obviously extreme examples, but as you can see from the fear-inducing and often violent images depicted on signs of street evangelists and inside of chick tracts, Some Christians are still practicing evangelism in incredibly harmful ways. So, does that mean we should just stop altogether? Should those of us who follow Jesus just not share our faith with anyone else? Or, 
Is there a way to be evangelistic that actually promotes flourishing? Is there a way to talk to people about Jesus by using the way of Jesus, the way of sacrificial love? For the last few weeks, we've been in this teaching series called Wholehearted Practices. In it, we've been taking a look at these various Christian practices found in Scripture. And we're doing that because even though these things have been given by God to help people, too many times they've been weaponized to hurt people instead. And because of that, many of us have just thrown these practices away completely. And I get it. I I understand why we do that. But I I don't think that it's the answer. I'm convinced there is a path in between practicing these things in ways that hurt people and throwing them away completely. There is a way for wholehearted practices to accomplish what God always intended for them to accomplish. That is to bring healing and wholeness and fullness of life to all people. So far in this series, we've covered prayer, confession, fellowship, tithing. Today, we're going to talk about evangelism. So first, I want to look at where we get this word evangelism from. It's actually a transliteration of a Greek word, evangelion. It's not exactly how you say it in Greek, but that's the transliteration of it. That's where we get evangelism. So what does the word actually mean? Well, the noun form, it means good news or gospel. And in the verb form, it means to proclaim the good news. One of the most interesting things about this word is that it actually doesn't originate with Jesus. It doesn't even originate with Christianity in general or Judaism at all. The word first became popular because of Caesar Augustus and his Roman Empire. This was a political word. Gospel proclamations were common in the Roman world. You see, they were sent out to announce the birth and the royal family or or the expansion of the empire. Caesar would send out a gospel proclamation saying, we've conquered a new territory. A new heir has been born. This is good news. Rejoice with us. See, the Roman Empire was huge. It was ever expanding, meaning new nations were constantly being conquered and brought under Roman rule. The Romans referred to this as Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. But we know that any peace the Pax Romana had was actually gained and maintained by brutal force from Roman soldiers who at this point in history were the most powerful warriors that the world had ever known. So the gospel of Caesar Augustus was good news for a very small group of people, right? The ruling elite. Most of the time, these gospel proclamations from Rome meant that yet another nation had been defeated. Yet another group of people had been enslaved to the empire, Or it meant that a royal heir had been born who would probably grow up to be yet another cruel dictator. But God decides to co-opt this word for his own glorious purposes. It's really beautiful. The first two times we see evangelism used in scripture, it's actually spoken by angels announcing the birth of Jesus. The most famous being in Luke chapter 2. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. This is to the shepherds. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news, Evangelion, that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So what is this evangelistic message from the angel? 
It's that Jesus, God incarnate, has been born on earth, that he has come to offer grace and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and fullness of life to everyone, all people. He has come to show us what being human was always supposed to be like, to demonstrate the way of Jesus, which is the way of sacrificial love for God and neighbor, and to conquer sin and evil and death through his life, death, and resurrection. That is Evangelion. That is the gospel of Jesus. And it could not be more different than the gospel of Caesar. See, the gospel of Caesar Augustus was only good news for a few people, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all people. The gospel of Rome meant that only the empire flourished, but the gospel of God's kingdom means that everyone flourishes. So this means that if our evangelism is not good news of great joy for all people, then it is not the evangelism that God had in mind. If our gospel does not promote flourishing for absolutely everyone, then it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian evangelism is life and love and flourishing for all people. Anything else is counterfeit. Anything else is wrong. So that's what evangelism is. And I think most of us can agree, right? That message, it's, it's worth sharing with others. But then the question becomes how, right? Because when so many of us have had harmful experiences with evangelism, how do we share the good news of Jesus with people in ways that are helpful instead of harmful? Well, I think we can actually learn from the Bible's most famous evangelist. That's the Apostle Paul. See, Paul was a persecutor of Christians who became a church planter and evangelist after a life-changing encounter with Jesus. He started churches all over the ancient Near East, and in his letters to those churches, he talks a lot about what evangelism is. These letters actually make up a large part of our New Testament. In his earliest recorded letter to one of these churches in the city of Thessalonica, Paul lays out his evangelism strategy, so to speak. Here's what he says. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, Evangelion, but our own lives too. We loved you so much that we did not just share God's good news with you, but our own lives too. You see, Paul didn't just preach the gospel, Paul lived the gospel. He didn't just share a message, he shared his life. The church in Thessalonica got started because Paul and one of his ministry partners, a guy named Silas, spent a bunch of time sharing this holistic good news of Jesus, not just preaching sermons, but building communities, serving people, loving people. And later in this letter, Paul says that they all became like family. He uses the imagery of caring for each other like a mother cares for her children. And this holistic gospel, it proved invaluable for these people because you see, Paul and Silas ended up being driven out of Thessalonica by the Roman Empire and the church began to experience significant persecution there. And the deep relationships they developed though with one another and with God were what sustained them through these really difficult times. It was the good news that they could hold on to when so much bad news surrounded them. This model of holistic evangelism, one that doesn't just share the good news of Jesus, but shares life together, it's actually by far the most prevalent model of evangelism in the New Testament. 
But not only that, I really think it is the only model of evangelism that is both healthy and effective for us today. About 10 years ago, the church I worked at in Dallas did something called a seeker panel. Basically, in place of the Sunday sermon, they did a panel discussion with three non-Christians who wanted to give a big group of Christians some feedback, how we were doing. The whole thing was really awesome, but I want to I want you to check out this short clip based on what we've been talking about so far. Here it is. As you think back to some of your negative experiences engaging in spiritual conversations with Christians, what lessons could you learn from that? And if you had the opportunity by chance to talk to some Christians about how to share their faith, what, and by the way, you do have an opportunity. Um, and if you could coach us, if you could give us some pointers or some tips on how best to initiate spiritual conversations, how to engage in that process, and how to be respectful, uh, what, what would you tell us that would help you and serve you in your exploring and, and as you're open to learning about spiritual things? I would love to take this one first. Um, <laughs> you are a little too eager. Uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. I've done a lot of thinking about that question since yesterday. Um, and I think there's three key points that you need to hit. Um, friendship, first off. If you are not a legitimate friend of the person you're trying to talk to about religion and faith, you, you're not going to get anywhere because you're not going to just want to talk about that in depth with people that you don't really know. And you want that friendship so if they can't change your mind, if, you know, everybody stays at point A and point B, yeah. you still have that friendship. Yeah. It's not just about a conquest to change who or what you believe. Right. Um, right. Second would be empathy. A lot of non-believers and atheists and whatnot have been uh, hurt by not necessarily the church, but, you know, family, just kind of that whole experience. Yeah. And so you really need to understand where they're coming from um, so you can better grasp why they believe what they believe. Sure. And the third would be listen. Hmm. If you're not legitimately listening, if you're just thinking in your head, like you're nodding your head, you know, going with the motions, but you're thinking in your head, okay, he, he said X, so I'm going to counter with Y. You need to legitimately listen. Yeah. Or, I mean, you can tell when someone's not listening to you. So, those wow. three. Those three. Friendship, empathy, listening. No mention of debates, dogmas, doctrinal statements. He didn't say, they need, to be answer all, they need to be able to answer all of my questions about God. He didn't say, they need to know enough verses in the Bible to convince me. He said, I want friendship and empathy and someone who actually listens to me instead of just waiting for their turn to talk. Do you know what he's describing? Love. Love. He wants love from people. He wants to be loved by a Christian before he cares to know what it is they believe. Have you ever heard that old saying, right? People don't care what you know until they know that you care. It's true. The foundation of all true Jesus-centered, God-honoring evangelism is love. It is the foundation of our entire faith, so it must be the foundation of the sharing of our faith too, right? 
not just sharing the gospel with people, but sharing our lives with people. And when someone knows that you love them, when you've actually demonstrated it through friendship and empathy and listening, then you can tell them about the one who loves them most. This is the entirety of my evangelism strategy. You ready? This is the entirety of it. Number one, do your best to love people well. Number two, point them to the one who loves them perfectly. Do your best to love people well. Once you've done that, then point them to the one who loves them perfectly. When I talk to people I love about the good news of Jesus, I basically just say something like, you know, this is a thing that has been life-changing in the best way for me. And because I love you, I I want that for you too. But regardless of whether you decide to follow Jesus or not, change your beliefs or not, our friendship won't change. That's it. (laughs) That is the whole thing. There's this Jesuit priest named Father Greg Boyle who I talk about all the time. His first book, Tattoos on the Heart, is one of my all-time favorite books. It's about Father Greg who runs a ministry called Homeboy Industries in what is known as the gang capital of the world, a neighborhood called Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles. And Homeboy is the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program. And for the last 30 years, they have helped gang members, at-risk youth, and incarcerated folks through a variety of free programs like mental health counseling, legal services, tattoo removal, spiritual direction, curriculum and education classes, work readiness training, employment services, just complete wraparound care services. And in Tattoos on the Heart, Father Greg talks about the power of boundless compassion. And he tells stories of these interactions with people he's had at Homeboy and his work all over Boyle Heights. One of the stories is about a gang member named Pedro, who Father Greg, or just G, as he is affectionately called, offers to take to rehab when he develops an addiction to alcohol and cocaine. So Father Greg offers, Pedro says no. Father Greg offers, Pedro says no, over and over and over again. But Greg continues to offer until one day, Pedro finally says yes. Here's what happens. You never stop asking, and sometimes the no matter whatness prevails, and so it did with Pedro. I drove him to his rehab north of Los Angeles, and he began the long, hard, slow work of returning to himself. 30 days into his stay there, his younger brother, Joven, enfeebled by similar demons and displaced in the same chemical dependence, did what homies explicitly don't ever do. He put a gun to his head and ended his pain. Homies, more often than not, just decide to put themselves in harm's way when things turn bleakest. They just take a stroll into their enemy's domain. Gang-banging is how they commit suicide. And any shooter is never going on a mission, a foray into enemy territory, intending to kill, but rather hoping to die. Joven's homies were unfamiliar then with this new language, so direct, bypassing the slow dance with danger that eventually gets you the same in the end. So I call Pedro. And he is, of course, devastated. But since he is now 30 days sober, he allows the pain passage to his core and doesn't permit the hurt to waste time languishing in some distant way station. He lets all the sadness in. And this is new. I schedule to pick him up for the funeral and make a point to emphasize that I'll be driving him back to rehab right after the burial. Of course, gee, I want to come back here. 
I make the trek to the mountaintop and feel inadequate as I always do in accompanying such a loss, especially as huge as this one felt. Emily Dickinson writes, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul, that sings the song without words and never stops at all. I've come to trust the value of simply showing up and singing the songs without words. And yet each time I find myself sitting with the pain that folks carry, I am overwhelmed by my own inability to do much more than stand in awe, dumbstruck by the sheer size of the burden, more than I've ever been asked to carry. Pedro is out front waiting for me when I arrive, and we greet each other. We hop in the car. Any worry I have about what to say gets punctured by Pedro's insistence to tell me about a dream he had the night before. It's a trip, G. I had this dream last night, and you were in it. And in this dream, Pedro and I are in a large, empty room, just the two of us. There are no lights, no illuminated exit signs, no light creeping in from under the doors. There are no windows. There is no light. And he seems to know that I am there with him, a a sense, really, though we do not speak. Suddenly, in this dark silence, I retrieve a flashlight from my pocket, and I turn it on. I find the light switch in the room on the wall, and I shine this narrow beam of light on the switch. I don't speak. I just hold the beam, steady and unwavering. Pedro says that even though no words are exchanged, he knows he is the only one who can turn the light switch on. He thanks me for happening to have a flashlight. He makes his way to the switch, following the beam with, I suppose, some trepidation. He arrives at the switch takes a deep breath and flips it on. The room is flooded with light. He's now sobbing at this point in the telling of the dream. And with a voice of astonishing discovery, he says, and the light is better than the darkness. The light is better than the darkness. As if he did not previously know this to be the case. He's weeping now, unable to continue. And then he says, I guess my brother just never found that light switch. And Father Greg says, possessing flashlights and occasionally knowing where to aim them has to be enough for us. Fortunately, none of us can save anybody. But we all find ourselves in this dark, windowless room, fumbling for grace and flashlights. You aim the light this time, I'll do it next time. This is the slow work of God. I think that's my very favorite evangelism story. Do you want to know something astounding? Jack Chick, the founder of Chick Tracks, he's also from Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. Two Christians, Jack Chick and Greg Boyle, from the same place, both with a heart to evangelize, chose completely opposite paths. Jack decided to use fear and violence to try to scare people into becoming a Christian. But Father Greg decided to use love and compassion to point people to Jesus. Jack chose to share tracks. Father Greg chose to share his life. When it comes to evangelism, I think we have a choice to make. The path of Jack Chick and others who lead with coercion and fear, or the path of Father Greg and others, like Jesus himself, 
who lead with compassion and love and care. I truly believe the vast majority of us never share our faith because we associate evangelism with people like Jack Chick and practices like handing out tracts or winning theological debates or standing on the corner of a street with a bullhorn or a sign. But that's not what evangelism is, according to Jesus and the scriptures. I think the most Christ-centered form of evangelism is loving people well and then pointing them to the one who loves them perfectly. Like Father Greg said, possessing flashlights and occasionally knowing where to aim them has to be enough for us. None of us can save anybody. But we all find ourselves in this dark, windowless room fumbling for grace and flashlights. You aim the light this time, and I'll do it the next. The slow work of God. What I want you to take away from this is that we can all do this. All of us can do this. You may not realize it, but you can do this. You have been given everything that you need to step into this wholehearted practice of evangelism. You know how to love people and point them to the God who loves them most. You know how to be a friend, how to practice empathy, how to truly listen to people. You know your story, what Jesus has done for you. You know about the healing and wholeness you've experienced through a faith community. Listen to me, you have a flashlight in your pocket. I don't know how long it's been since you've pulled it out and pointed it, but it is there. And people need to see it. People need to see it, not in coercive and fear-induced ways, but in ways completely gathered in love. You are fully capable of shining that flashlight on the light switch so that somebody can light up an entire room. Evangelism doesn't have to be fear-mongering and coercive and colonizing. In fact, I think Christ-centered evangelism is the opposite of all those things. I get why you don't want to talk to people about your faith, especially if these harmful forms of evangelism have been weaponized against you and people that you love but I think that the healing and the wholeness and the fullness of life that Jesus wants to share through us is too important for us to throw evangelism away altogether. If you love someone and you have experienced something that promotes your own flourishing both now and forevermore, why wouldn't you want to share that with them? Whether they say yes or not, whether they change their mind or not, they're going to appreciate that you share that with them because it's from a place of love. I believe each and every Christian is called to do our best to love people well and to point them to the God who loves them perfectly. Now listen, that may look different for all of us, but my challenge to us this week is to just give it a try. Maybe just through an act of service. Maybe you don't use any words at all. Maybe through a spiritual conversation. Or maybe just through providing an empathetic ear to listen to someone who's having a hard time. Whatever it looks like, let's take a step into this wholehearted practice of Christ-centered evangelism together. The band is going to come up and lead us in one more song. And then I'm going to come back up with another member of our church family. And I'm going to tell you about a really beautiful and unique way 
to put evangelism into practice that you can do this week. It's really cool. So would you stand with me? We're going to sing and then we'll come back together. Lord God, you are so good. Thank you for the, the depth of the scriptures on evangelism. Thank you for the clarity of the way it was practiced by Paul in the first church. I thank you for the way you've loved us. I pray that we would love other people the same way. Jesus, your last night on earth, you gathered your closest friends around you and you said, a new command I give you, love each other as I have loved you. I pray that we would love every single person we encounter as you have loved us. And then we would point people to you who know them fully and love them perfectly. And they would get to experience the fullness of that love. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.